Hi, welcome to Life Stories, a podcast series where I interview memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan, and my guest today is Mary Johnson, and she is the author of An Unquenchable Thirst, a memoir which just came out in paperback from Spiegel and Grau. And we're delighted to have you here today, Mary. It's great to be here, Ron. Thank, Thank you. you. This is a story of about 20 years that you spent in the Missionary of Charity, which is... Mother. Just the convent founded by Mother Teresa of Calcutta. What drew you to, to Mother Teresa's convent? In It was back in the mid-70s, right? It was. It was 1976. I was a senior in high school. I went to a public high school. I was walking down the hall to my French class, actually. And in the library, I saw this picture on the cover of Time magazine, this wrinkled woman with the white veil, and it said, Living Saints. And I just went to the library, forgot about my French class, and as I read about the way this this nun, Mother Teresa, was caring for the poor, taking the sick off the streets, finding babies in dustbins, um, it's kind of like a fire burning inside of me. I don't really know how to explain it, but in that moment I kind of knew the way I think only teenagers know things, that I was meant to do that. I was meant to take care of the poor the way Mother Teresa was. And so after a couple what amounts to sort of audition meetings, you were accepted as uh, as an initiate. As an aspirant, that's the first stage, in the South Bronx. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in South Bronx in the late 70s, it was a very interesting place. It was the summer, actually, I joined in 77, so the summer of the blackout, the summer of Son of Sam, just a really interesting time to be a 19-year-old becoming a nun in New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so many great details about your life as an aspirant in the opening chapters. One of the things that struck me about these passages as I was reading them is, you know, right off the bat, you kind of get into the hierarchy of the missionary and how there were times when what was going on in the structure seemed in ways contradictory to the mission that you had signed up for. Yeah, that's true. I think I found myself butting up all the time against authority for authority's sake rather than for services sake and that was hard it was tricky the missionaries of charity are definitely a very hierarchical institution and mother teresa stressed obedience very strongly in the beginning one of the hardest things for me was being assigned always to the kitchen um, i spent a lot of time in the kitchen making soup from rotten vegetables that sort of thing um, the other sisters were going out and caring for the poor and we had a summer day camp for kids that i was really hoping i would get sent to and eventually i did eventually you know we took turns in the kitchen i guess those assignments you know wasn't really the trickiest part because somebody had to cook that was okay but the limitations that got put on our service to the poor, that we were just to feed the people, but not really to help them get out of poverty. Eventually, that became very hard for me. In the immediate term, you know, I'm thinking about the advice that Mother gave to you sort of early on in your, I guess, career, for lack of a better word. Sure, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll call it a career. Why not? When she told you that you wanted to be consulted before God used you, her advice to you was to sort of like break yourself of that. Yes, what Mother Teresa told me, she says, she used to speak of herself in the third person a lot. So she says, Mother knows what's wrong with you. And of course, you know, that gets your attention, Mother Teresa telling you she knows what's wrong with you. And she told me, "Um, you like to be consulted. You need to let Jesus use you without consulting you. And the idea really was that Jesus spoke through the superiors, that you weren't supposed to question that and just go forward. And so I tried. I tried to do that. You talked about sort of the internal conflict that you had 
with the way that the mission was maintaining but not really improving the situation. That's right. I think another aspect of that that you bumped up against internally was I noticed you chafing in the memoir any time that Mother starts talking about chastity or birth control or abortion in ways that seemed very out of step with the reality of the experience many people, many, especially many poor people, were having in the, in the modern world. I can think of a lot of situations that anybody who was working so closely with the poor all over the world in places like India, like Africa, and like the United States, North, South America, I mean, the missionaries of charity were everywhere, that there would be this clinging to the church teaching that all forms of contraception were wrong. didn't really make a lot of sense. Um, and just... Yes, that kind of lack of awareness of where people were. I remember once I was stationed in Washington, and Mother Teresa had come to give a commencement address at Georgetown. And she told the students there, she said, you know, as they were graduating from college, the best thing that you can give each other on your wedding day is a virgin body. And I was like, wow, what is she imagining that the life of these college students has been like? When you entered the missionary in the late 70s. Vatican II was fresh enough in recent memory that there was still a lot of chafing against the reforms that had been introduced. And it seemed like, based on some of the incidents in, in the memoir, that Mother Teresa and particularly some of her top lieutenants, for lack of a better word again, were very hyper-vigilant about looking for any sort of deviation from even, you know, the jot of an I or the crossing of a T in the traditional liturgy. Yeah, it wasn't such a big problem for Mother Teresa. I think she was slightly more flexible about those things. She was definitely a traditional woman when it came to the Catholic liturgy and her approach to the hierarchy. But there were two sisters who got a lot of control in the group, two sisters who actually served in New York and I think they had a lot of influence in the Missionaries of Charity, pulling the group further and further to the right. And we were instructed that if a priest changed any word in the liturgy, we were supposed to report that to our superiors who were supposed to report it to the bishop. For example, even something as simple as a priest saying, the Lord be with you all, instead of the Lord be with you. You know, that was seen as like a really big deal. And I could never wrap my head around that. <laughs> you know, the, the sisters that who sort of were behind that, and as you say, they had amassed a, a amount of power within the order. One of them was your first superior when you joined the order in New York. And I was struck by how after you had gone on to receive further training, and then you were receiving your first assignment, you were originally going to Albania, and then all of a sudden it gets switched around and you're reassigned to St. Louis. And then the thing that really struck me about this here is that that sister had basically requested that you be assigned to St. Louis, where Mother knew that there was a new chapter house and that they needed new nuns, but that she had orchestrated things that it's like, oh yeah, anybody who's going anywhere in America comes through me first, and it's like, I really want you in New York, but Mother's not going to let me have you in New York, so I'm just going to tell her I need you in St. Louis. Yes, that was very annoying. Sister Priscilla was her name, and she had the habit of doing things like that. She was she was a person who controlled everything, and 
professed to be very close to Mother Teresa in every way, but manipulated her relationship with Mother Teresa in very masterful ways. <laughs> she knew that there were already a number of American sisters in the South Bronx and that Mother Teresa didn't like to have a concentration of sisters from the same country in the same house. They needed an American sister in St. Louis. I'd been assigned there, but yeah, she kept me in New York. And I liked being in New York. That was okay for me, but eventually it became really really difficult to live underneath Sister Priscilla, to tell the truth. You write about other sisters who were very good at manipulating Mother Teresa that you run across over the course of your career. And I'm thinking particularly here of Sisters Naomi and, and Sister Lita, who in, in very different ways sabotaged your progression. Within, the, I mean, there were other people who sabotaged your progression, but these two did it in very clear-cut ways. Sister Niobe was the first person in my life that ever told me, I love you. Threw me really off balance. Certainly, I, I knew my parents loved me, but they never used language like that. And I'd never had a close relationship with anybody before I joined. i never actually really been out on a date. I was a very geeky sort of teenager. But probably more, a little more than midway through what you would call my career as a sister, so after I'd probably been in about 12 years, Sister Niobe appeared. She told me that she loved me. She started getting close to me. And Mother Teresa had always been really clear. I mean, two sisters were never supposed to talk to each other alone. Um, she took the interpretation of the vow of chastity to all sorts of extremes. We were never to touch each other, never to get close to anyone. Really, we wrote home to our families only once a month. We could go home to visit our families once every 10 years for two weeks. So it's really very kind of cut off from any sort of intimacy with other people. Right. And, and I was hungry for that. Yeah, and you were, <laughs> I mean, you had been warned about the dangers of what they called particular friendship with other sisters long before you even had any idea about what that actually meant. Yes, particular friendship as a euphemism for lesbianism in this case. And of course, I yeah, it went way over my head the first time they, they talked about it, you know. But Sister Niobe was very skilled at manipulating sisters. And I didn't realize that in the beginning. I didn't realize she'd had a long history. She seemed a very approachable person to me. She seemed someone who was interested in me, which was really astonishing because for 12 years nobody had ever expressed any personal interest in me. Yeah, I proved rather too easy to manipulate. And in a way, as I was reading those sections, you know, there's this element to it that seems almost in a way beyond the question of orientation or attraction, that it, it wasn't so much about it being a lesbian relationship right. as right. that it was, you were in an intimate relationship, period. For the first time, and in the beginning, it felt so wonderful just to be close to somebody else, to have somebody listen to my stories, to listen to hers, to get close to her. When you're forbidden all touch, just the feet underneath the table is a really big thing. You feel this electricity thing happening there. And the really poignant aspect of this story, as it falls apart, the, the relationship between you and Sister Niobe, is that, I mean, you, you clearly realize, once you do figure out that she is a manipulator and that she has no interest in maintaining her vows of chastity or respecting anybody else's vows of chastity with the order. I mean, you tried to do the right thing and, and alert people she was not right for the order, but she had already become so expert at manipulating others, particularly Mother Teresa, that she got a pass. 
She did. And this weird thing happened that I never thought would happen when I first started getting close to Sister Niobe, that I eventually became responsible to prepare her for final vows. And so I had to write a report advising that she be allowed to take vows or not. And I was very clear eventually, you know, several times I wrote different reports that she really had no intention of keeping her vow of chastity. And I eventually discovered that Mother Teresa knew that Sister Niobe had had problems in other communities, that she'd done the same sort of things over and over again. But Mother had this, a real blind spot, I think, when it comes to the harm that sometimes people can do when they're sexually manipulating other people. And she would, she had told us that it was a worse sin for us to talk about what Sister Niobe had done than for Sister Niobe to have manipulated other people for her to have done it, you know, to talk about it was worse because talking about it was something we had control over and who knew whether she had control over what she did. And of course, I mean, the broader analogy to the Catholic Church's problems in the 70s and 80s is Absolutely, absolutely. And the whole cover up and the whole just you don't talk about it and you don't deal with it and you just move the person around. Mother Teresa did that sort of thing. And one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book was because I saw how people in the church are so reluctant to talk about their own experiences of what it's like to live a vow of chastity or a vow of celibacy, how sisters get very lonely, how priests get lonely, how you have these natural, normal human desires, but because nobody's talking about them and because those desires are seen as somehow not holy and unworthy and temptations that are just to be shoved away, nobody deals with them honestly. And until people can start talking about their own experiences, desires in those areas, I didn't feel like anything was going to change for the better. What was the tipping point at which, I mean, you struggled with these issues for two decades. What was it that finally got you to the point where you were like, I cannot be here anymore. I cannot do this anymore. I need to to step away. You know, for me, it wasn't necessarily exactly one event, but it was this feeling of suffocation that kind of overtook me over a long period of time. It got to the point where I just said, okay, so I'm kind of living this double life because by the time I didn't have a relationship in Nairobi anymore, I cut all that off. We weren't in the same house, but I in the meantime, I'd fallen in love with a priest. So that hadn't really gone too far, but there was definitely this attraction. There was definitely fantasizing about getting married one day. And I kind of felt like I had one foot in and one foot out. And I needed, if I was going to make a decision about whether I was going to stay with the sisters, I just needed to dedicate myself for a year to really try my best. And so that's what I did. I spent a whole year trying to keep the rules, um, trying to be a good sister. My thing was, if at the end of the year I feel like I can be myself in this group, I'll stay. If I feel like I can't be myself, I'm going to go. And so many different things happened, and I didn't... I had some creative contributions I wanted to make to the group. We were in charge of a home for refugee mothers and their children, and I had a way with a Roman entrepreneur to try to help these women out of poverty and really give them some stability in their lives. And I wasn't given permission to start this knitting cooperative that we had. It was just like, I am here only to do what the people upstairs tell me to do. I felt like a robot. I didn't feel like myself. And I knew that I needed more intimate relationships than the rules allowed as well. So at the end of the year, I just decided I needed to go. This was the mid-90s that this happened. It was 97 when I left. Yeah. So this was, I think, maybe a little bit after the Christopher Hitchens. Yes. Devastating critique 
Mother Teresa and her order. So marvelously titled <laughs> the missionary position, mm-hmm. yes. And while there are points at which your first-person perspective of the order matches up with certain points that he makes in the missionary position, you have that that same first-person perspective gives you another facet to to consider it from. Yeah, I think Christopher Hitchens had most of his facts right. He was right that Mother Teresa took money from anybody, from the Duvaliers, from Castro. She took money from Charles Keating and refused to give it back to the people whom he had cheated to get that large, substantial sum that he donated. Christopher Hitchens had all those facts right. But I don't think he really understood Mother Teresa's motivations. He called her a hypocrite, and I don't think she was. I think she really firmly believed in what she was doing. She was trying the best. She did have limited understanding. She was born in 1910 in Albania. There were a lot of things that she really didn't grasp. But I never found anything in her that was hypocritical. And what was interesting to me about Hitchens is that when in 2007, so 10 years after Mother Teresa's death, he read the letters that she had written to her spiritual directors very early on, letters in which she talks about her doubts, about her soul feeling tormented. Hitchens publicly revised his opinion about Mother Teresa and that he took back the hypocrite word. And he said basically he thought she was a true believer and she was trying her best and that she was manipulated by the Vatican was the way he worded it. And I think that was very accurate. And it's one of the things I admire about atheists, that in the presence of evidence, they're willing to change their opinions. And I don't always find that among religious people. Another of the crises in your final year or so was a sort of an internal schism between your sister Priscilla and her cabal. And the school where some of the sisters received further education. And it got to a point at which they brought Ratzinger in to play bad cop. And that that whole section was kind of fascinating to me. They were, Mother Teresa had always tried to send some of the sisters to study theology. Her idea was that these sisters could help train the other sisters. And I was one of those who had been sent to study theology at Regina Mundi. And Sister Priscilla and Sister Frederick were very much opposed to the sisters getting any sort of higher education. I think they saw the sisters who'd completed these studies as rivals in a certain sense. And they did. They defamed one of the priests who was a professor at the school, claiming that he taught somehow contrary to the church's teaching on abortion, which definitely would have caught Mother Teresa's attention. The first cardinal who investigated it didn't really find anything wrong. They enlisted Ratzinger. Ratzinger put the pressure on. And yes, indeed, that priest eventually was barred from teaching moral theology for a certain period of time. Eventually, he was completely exonerated um, and became in charge of the moral theology department at the Gregorian University. But in the meantime, because of Sister Frederick and Sister Priscilla's efforts, Mother Teresa stopped sending the sisters to study. As somebody who was so deep in the Catholic Church at one point and is now standing slightly apart from it, what was your perspective on the whole recent abdication of, of Ratzinger as, as Pope Benedict and the, the, the search for a new pope? Actually, I thought Pope Benedict's resigning was the best thing he had ever done for the papacy, and I'm sure it will be the longest effect, just to treat the job as a job. And instead of saying, infusing it with this sort of mystical significance as other popes had, I am Peter, I am the rock, I cannot retire. Poor John Paul II, they were holding him up as he goes to the altar. Um, Ratzinger says, okay, so my 
my health is failing, I can't do this anymore, somebody else can do it. And who knows what else might have been behind that, because I think we never know exactly the motives behind things that happen in the Vatican. The church has been building this wall of secrecy for so many centuries, and they're really good at it. But that he, that he was willing to retire, I thought, was a really good thing. I'm trying to keep a very open mind about Pope Francis. Who knows what may happen? I can't say I'm as optimistic as a lot of people are, but I want to give him a chance. We'll see. Certainly on paper, he seems like the sort of Pope who would be very inclined to promote the agendas that attracted you to the order in the first place. I think he has lived a simple life. He has shown a concern for the poor. He's also shown a a very hard-line stance to a lot of the issues that are important to me now as far as women's issues goes, being more and more open to LGBT people. He really seems rather inflexible there. But yes, I think he is much more a simpler lifestyle, reaching out to people on a more personal level. Now, as we said, you left the order in the late 90s, and it wasn't for another, not quite a decade, but it was some time before you started writing about Already you're looking back at events that are close to 30 years back. Yes. So as a two-part question then, what did prompt you to set the story down? And then what were the challenges in trying to do a detailed account of something that had happened that far back? I think I wanted to write it, as I said before, because of when the depths of the pedophilia problem in the church were being revealed, I really wanted to open up a discussion about celibacy and its role in the church. I also saw that uh, the image of Mother Teresa that had been projected by the media was so two-dimensional. It wasn't that three-dimensional person that I knew. And I wanted to try to help people see her in a more three-dimensional light. I also, um, people just kept telling me, you know, you have this book to write. You have these stories. You should tell these things. And eventually I decided that it was good. It was a time to do that. It was a challenge on a lot of levels, just making that decision. I didn't want to uninspire people. There were a lot of people who'd been inspired by Mother Teresa to do good things. Eventually, I kind of decided, well, you know, these people who need to have this two-dimensional picture of Mother Teresa in order to be inspired, they're just going to say that I'm lying or bitter or whatever, and they're not going to pay attention to me anyway. And those who are ready for a deeper understanding of it are ready. So, and I think that's pretty much what happened. But writing it was was tricky. Um, one of the first good pieces of advice I got about writing this book was to just write everything out before I forgot it and not worry too much about the form. Just put it all on paper. So that was definitely one of the first things that I did. One of the great things that happened, I helped my parents move at a certain point, and I discovered that they'd kept all my letters, you know, 20 years worth of letters in shoeboxes, in filing cabinets, you know, I just put them all together. I think I was only missing three months worth of letters. So that was a big help in remembering things. Remembering also was easy in the sense that we really didn't have any distractions with the sisters. You know, we didn't have radios, we didn't have TV, we didn't have newspapers, we didn't have real distracting books to read. We just had this tiny shelf of spiritual books that we could read from every day. So we just had our lives, and our lives were very much the same. The schedule in New York was the same as the schedule in Rome. We just, anytime anything happened that was special, it stood out in your memory. Right. There, there wasn't a lot of mental clutter as far as like the late 70s and 80s and 90s were concerned. No. When I left the sisters, you know, I had all this cultural catching up to do. I completely missed the 80s, and 
it was hard to carry on conversations in the beginning that made any sense with people. But I knew what I knew <laughs> because I didn't have any distractions. An unquenchable thirst ends as you're leaving the order with an epilogue set closer to the present day. But it sounds like there probably is maybe a second book detailing what happens in the years immediately after you leave it? I think there is. I'm working on it now. In my mind, it has a title, something kind of like When Everything Changes, because that's kind of what happened for me. And I know that change is something that everybody has to deal with on one level or another. So it might be interesting, you know, just to, to talk about really what happens when everything changes in an instant. In the time since the book first came out in hardcover, has word gotten back to you or have you been in contact with your former sisters about uh, any reactions to the story? You know, whenever a sister leaves the Missionaries of Charity, and of course this isn't true for all Catholic religious orders by any stretch, but the Missionaries of Charity really discourage you after you've left getting back in contact with any of the sisters. But, you know, some sisters have written me letters. A Catholic journalist who is actually a priest approached one of the sisters who is now Superior General in the position that Mother Teresa had when she was alive, Sister Prema, and he asked her what she thought of the book, and she said, that she thought it was a humbling time for the society, but that perhaps this was Jesus asking if the sisters needed to change anything. And I thought that was just, you know, kind of like the best response I could hope for. Apart from working on the next memoir, what else is uh, at the front of your life lately? I work a lot with an organization called A Room of Our Own Foundation, and actually, just yesterday here in New York, we announced the sixth $50,000 Gift of Freedom Award for a woman writer. Um, a poet, Diane Gillum, won that award this year. So I work a lot with helping other women especially tell their stories, whether it's memoir, fiction, poetry, playwriting. Um, a Room of Our Own Foundation works with all of that, and I work very closely with those women. So that's been a really big thing for me. I've also been working more and more with humanist communities in various ways. I'm finding that very rewarding. Were you able to reconnect with a sense of working with the poor that you had really sort of felt shunted away from by your later years in the order? Initially, when I first left the sisters, it was my first impulse to go look for a soup kitchen, to look for a night shelter, to, to do that same sort of work that I'd always done. But some very wise people in my life told me, you know, you don't need to do that right now. You need to do something different. Give it a little bit of a rest, get a different perspective on things. And so I took that advice. I did go back after a few years to, to look at more direct work with the poor, and I did some work in my local soup kitchen. And as I did, I really kind of felt like, okay, so these are the things that I used to do, but now I really need to do something different. Before, I think the question that I used to ask myself is, where's the greatest need? And now I kind of ask myself, what is the unique gift that I can give that maybe other people can't give? And that's the thing I should be doing. Based on the evidence of an unquenchable thirst, you are doing a fantastic job of it. And I'm really glad that you came by to chat with me today. I'm Ron Hogan. My guest has been Mary Johnson. And as I said, the book is An Unquenchable Thirst. It's a memoir that's just out in paperback from Spiegel and Grau. I encourage you all to check it out, and I hope you will check out a future installment of Life Story Sue. Thank you.